Hi, listener. This is From Ideology to Unity, a spiritual journey where we let go of ego and ideological doctrine in favor of meaning, purpose, and unity as a whole. Today, I'm interviewing Aaron Abke, a prominent YouTuber who helps people free their minds, empower their heart, and expand their consciousness. Hi, Aaron. How are you doing today? Hey, Nicholas. Great to be with you. Yeah, same. So, well, I suppose you've already, in some of your videos, you've already explored how you, well, you could say awakened or mm. came across spirituality or what have you. But do you think you could uh, give a short summary of that story? Sure, yeah. Uh, in short, I grew up as a pastor's kid, uh, wanted to be a pastor like my father, pursued that route my whole life until about 23 after I graduated college with my degrees uh, to pursue ministry, had a spiritual awakening out of my religion and started pursuing Eastern thought and philosophy and studying um, Advaita Vedanta, Hinduism, Buddhism. And then at 27 years old, after maybe four or so years of pretty intensely seeking, um, experienced another spiritual awakening, which was more of an awakening out of my imaginary sense of self as a person and this awakening to the knowledge of I am the whole universe, I am everything. And that really shook me in a lot of uh, important ways. Um, most notably that it just gave me a lot of resource and desire and motivation to figure out how I could return to that state of consciousness where everything seemed so perfect. I, you know, we call it enlightenment sometimes. Um, I was able to see and experience for myself that it's a real state of consciousness that's available to us in this life. And so pretty much nothing else mattered to me after I had tasted that. And I wanted to just devote my whole life to seeking, how do, we, how do I return back to that understanding of who I am? And through that journey, I just began seeing out of my own passion and all of that and somehow found myself, you know, where I am today. <laughs> How did you come to understand how the mind works? <clears throat> well, a number of things, I think. Studying the ancient scriptures of like the Vedas, the Sutras, the Upanishads, Bhagavad Gita, um, reading a lot of the Buddha's teachings obviously helped tremendously. Listening to Eckhart Tolle and other masters, Muji, helped tremendously. But um, none of those dots would have been connected the way that they have been if I hadn't prioritized really seeing and experiencing my mind at work for myself in daily life and questioning my thoughts, really sitting with certain movements of my mind and wondering why does this happen like this? Where does this come from? What is the cause of this? And just asking a lot of questions and contemplation, I think led me to a lot of the insights that I teach about. Right. Did you get divine inspiration? Say again. Did you get divine inspiration? Well, yeah, I mean, I think that's where it always comes from is it's not the person who sees the, the divine truth of what it is, but it's just awareness itself. And I think that it's really an act of grace when we have those epiphanies into our true nature and any kind of release or healing is an act of grace that I think meets us simply when we have that willingness and desire to know the truth. And when we come to it humbly 
meaning I, not with this arrogance of like, I know everything already. I've got all the truth figured out. Why is this working? That's a mindset that blocks us from receiving divine truth. And so when we surrender instead to this understanding of, I don't know anything of myself, I can do nothing without you. I'm hopeless. Um, you take, you carry the burden of my awakening, Lord. That's kind of the approach that I took and it seemed to pay huge dividends. Was that partly due to your Christian upbringing? I think absolutely. Yeah. <clears throat> what I say a lot is that when I'm, asked about my religion is that the one really good thing I think Christianity did for me was it gave me this, this heart of devotion, uh, which is really the only thing Western Christianity does well. I think <laughs> they, uh, they don't have their, their philosophy figured out almost at all. Almost every doctrine is, is very contradicting, but they have such a intense love and passion for God that I saw through my own, uh, the church I grew up in, through my parents, you know, this heart of worship, this heart of devotion. I grew up just always loving God, talking to God in my mind, seeing everything through the lens of God. And when I left Christianity, I sort of lost that for a little while while I sought for wisdom and knowledge. And eventually after some years came back full circle and went, you know, what I really feel like I'm missing is that devotion I had um, from childhood to God of just trusting and surrendering and knowing like I am in my father's hands. Um, that to me was a very powerful catalyst for my awakening in a lot of ways. Yeah. I imagine it would be. I had a question there, so, but I can't remember what it is. So I'll move on. Um, so, You've mentioned that there's different thoughts that are kind of competing in the ego's mind, right? Yeah, very much so. So do people vary in which beliefs their ego resorts to, branching out from the core beliefs of the ego as sort of varying coping mechanisms in response to our brain? Yeah, absolutely. I like to use the analogy of uh, Play-Doh sometimes. If you imagine every, every soul is like a lump of Play-Doh, all the Play-Doh comes from the same pile. It's all just the same Play-Doh. But as it separates itself out into these individual parts, those individual parts go on their own journey and life molds them and shapes them differently than one another over time. So the ego, all egos function the same way. They have the same desires. They have the same foundations but the way that they express themselves will be different based upon the conditioning of each individual person and the traumas and experiences they go through. And so that will determine, you know, if, let's say if somebody grew up with a, a, a father who abandoned them from a young age, and that's a deep wound in them, well, then that first belief of I am lacking, I'm incomplete is probably going to be way more predominant in that person than in somebody else, right? So they, they definitely can show up in different intensities or to differing degrees, but everyone has all of the same beliefs from the ego, all of the same foundations are, are there. Right. And in the psyche, perhaps all the different beliefs of the ego and the way it works are there. But of course, 
I kind of picture it like, it's like a wheel with these different spokes. And then the middle is the I am. And each spoke coming out is like a, a fractured sort of, where each is like a belief and there's like opposite beliefs. So it's kind of like, one is that you might need to work hard to sort of be worthy. And the other is that might be escapism or not doing work. For me, yeah, that's what I feel like one of the things is going on with me because I feel like when I was growing up, this expectation of there's a lot of work I had to do to be worthy of my parents' love. But at the same time, there was a rebellious desire to just, to just have fun. But then again, if you get into escapism, then you're kind of saying you're not worthy because you need to have fun to be, to feel that worth. So it's like this dualistic thing where each belief has its opposite, but the opposite is repressed in the subconscious. Would you agree? Yeah, I think that the main idea is that everything we are taught or everything we learn in life, whether it's the way we're socialized or a like a direct teaching from a parent that they try to instill in us from a young age, any form of conditioning will become a competing concept in your mind. And the ego isn't an entity that can choose which concept it prefers. It has no preferences. It, it's, it's perfectly fine to let you have whichever your preference is, as long as it gets some identity out of it. Right. So whichever concept wins out is ultimately whichever one, you know, your soul gravitates towards more, whether it's worthiness or escapism, you know, that's going to be different for everybody. And the ego doesn't actually care because either one will enhance its sense of self at the end of the day. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Fundamentally, it wants control and identity. Yeah. And that just fuels it. And attention as well. Identity is power to the ego. Hmm. So in society, we see a lot of people clashing in society. Or we see people coming together in these tribal groups, which often might clash or dehumanize another. And do you think people are drawn to different, let's say, tribes which clash with each other based on which values or which beliefs their egos end up, well, which ones predominate more? Absolutely, yeah. It's, it, will, it enforces the sense of safety to the ego. Certainty is safety. It doesn't actually care what the certainty is. Um, even, you know, like one segment of the population right now, at least here in America, um, is very, has regressed in their thinking to a large degree into this, like, everything's evil, everything's bad, burn it all down, nothing's worth saving, everyone's an evil person that should be dehumanized. And that's the path to freedom. And it's like, well, who would want, who would want to resonate with that? Like, why would, why would that make you feel safe? That's a horrible worldview. <laughs> But if it's what the group believes and it's, and I belong to this group who believes it, it's a certainty. And so I feel safe believing it. There's really no logic beyond that to the ego. Well, there must be a reason why so many people are drawn to it, other than the fact that other people are drawn to it, though. 
you'd be surprised. There's, there's really not a whole lot of other reason than that. I would probably give it an, a 70 to 80% grade personally that, that people just want to belong somewhere and to feel loved, seen, appreciated, to fit in. That's a huge part of what the ego is, is our social survival. And many, many tests have sort of proven this psychological experiments that people will do and say things that are totally outrageous to their normal state of consciousness. If the group is doing it or thinking it or saying it, they're willing to concede what they know is rationally unacceptable or more unacceptable if it gets them approval from the group. Um, so I think a lot of rational thinking is eliminated or obstructed when there is this need of, to fit in, which of course comes from the belief that I am lacking. Yeah, yeah. So if some people value particularly highly um, approval from others in their social group, or, appear, or following the authority figures in that group, are they more likely to go along with more or to justify to themselves doing more to the enemy, so to speak? Say that again, you say if, if there's a leader in the group? Well, there's, I'm just, if some people might value authority, more, following authority and the group more, uh, do you think that might make some people more or some egos, you know, more drawn to following outrageous things than others? Yeah, I think a lot of what we're seeing in the world today is, is a lot of disempowerment coming to the surface, that it just feels easier, more convenient, safer to sort of give my rights away give my, my thoughts away, let other people think for me, let other people tell me what to do, what I can or can't do. Um, it just feels easier than to stand up for myself and be a, you know, be an empowered person to the ego. Of course, this isn't a conscious thing for people. And so if that's my disposition, then I have to hate and scapegoat anyone who's doing the reverse because what they're doing challenges my sense of self that I'm doing the right thing. I've figured it out. This is the right way to just concede and do what you're told and be submissive to authority. If that's the way I see the world, then I have to hate anybody who sees it any other way because it's a challenge to my ego sense of self. Is that a victim mentality? Right. That, that would be exactly what it is. Right. And it's giving away the responsibility and the security in following the control. Yeah. A big part of being a free conscious individual an expression of the creator is to step into that authenticity and say, I am my own person. I think for myself, uh, I, I make decisions based on what seems right in my own heart. I don't let outside forces tell me what I can or can't do. I mean, these are basic sort of empowerment lessons that every soul has to learn at some point because the negative path um, basically thrives off of taking away the free will of others. And so if your soul has made this choice, if I want to be a positive positively polarized being on the service to others path, then you have to stand against that kind of tyranny and control because that's the negative path. And if you want to take the negative path, that's equally valid, of course, but you need to go the other route. Right. And a lot of people maybe are in between because, or alternating because they haven't really consciously made that choice yet. Right. Yeah, many people are in that middle ground trying to decide which polarity feels right to them 
And either polarity will have its own challenges and tribulations to work through to become polarized on the negative path. You know, you have to put up with a lot of that. You have to be able to accept control, domination, manipulation, and control as a way of life. This is now the way I am. I allow those above me to control me and I seek to control those below me. And that has a whole host of, you know, difficulties and suffering with it. And on the positive path, uh, if I want to stand for love and unity, I have to be willing to face persecution for the sake of righteousness. I have to be willing to do the difficult things, give up my conveniences sometimes, you know, all these things life is asking of us now. I have to be willing to face those challenges if I want to be a positively polarized soul. Uh, there's just no way, other way to do it because if I let my light be dampened by those who want to take it from me, then I'm depolarizing myself. So there's really only one choice to make. Right. So on the positive path, spiritual ego might be something that one has to deal with. So how do you right. well, deal with it? Well, you deal with it by being aware of it. Um, I think, again, humility is just such an important virtue for spirituality because humility will really kind of widen the funnel of your awareness of what you're able to catch and see inside of yourself. When that little voice of arrogance comes in, starts to take credit for things and whatnot, you'll be able to see it quicker when it wants to use um, service to others to look good to other people. That's, you know, another thing spiritual ego will do. You'll be able to notice that. And in time, you know, once you, once you pick up the scent of the spiritual ego, the way it weaponizes spiritual truth to gain right. a foothold in your mind, once you start sniffing it out, it's very easy to see it. Um, but that beginning phase of catching the spiritual ego in your own consciousness can be a little bit rocky for people. Yeah. So something I've noticed is that if one experiences all these subjective perceives being persecuted in some way, there might be a temptation because, the, because of the ego to weaponize understanding of the mind. I mean, that's what the service of self part does, is it? it right. It's a psychological warfare and stuff. Right. Yeah. The negative path uh, um, in, in the fact that they need control and, manip and manipulation to polarize more negatively, they become masters of the intellect and they seek to know their opponent, the one they wish to enslave. They seek to know them even better than they know themselves. So they know how to appeal to all the right ideas to get their attention, to say all the right things, to make the, to seduce them and make them believe that they have their best interest in mind. And then once the, the oppressed person has fully surrendered their power of their free will and says, okay, yes, I trust you. I want what you're selling or whatever. Then the control has been complete and they don't give it back. And the, you know, the easiest way to see that is through any kind of communist takeover in human history. You know, that always begins with this, trumpeting of virtue we're here to help everyone we want to take care of you so give us your rights do what we say and we'll make a nice little utopia for you and if people believe that and they're willing to disempower themselves give their power away then once it's taken they never get it back again and then it becomes sort of a living nightmare yeah suppose you know you have a spiritual ego and even the potential to use 
what you know to your advantage. Like, I suppose, how do you know if you're like actually genuine or, or, you, or just using it as a, just an excuse? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or maybe well, you can't. Great. No, go ahead. Ultimately, you can't know without love. And that's why the positive path is the path of love because the the negative path will distort wisdom to such a degree that if you don't have a true compass of love in your heart to guide you, you won't detect when you're being pulled astray, right? So love is the guidance system, the internal compass. And you can always use love as your barometer for truth in whatever I do and whatever I find myself thinking about desiring is it based in love is it coming from a place of i love this individual i want their highest good and if you ask that question you'll get really quick answers on where it's coming from i think and can you feel the resonance of love as opposed to the sort of harsh feeling of ego and maybe discern it that way yes absolutely the love always brings expansion Ego always will bring contraction, right? The thoughts it thinks, the way it speaks to you will feel constricting. And sometimes in a weird way, that constricting feeling, you know, to hate someone, to be envious, whatever, it feels good in a sense, like a drug hit feels good for a moment. And that's, again, how the negative path sort of can sell you on it. But over time, the consequence is just way too much for anyone to want to bear, And so we come back again and again to seek for our freedom from it. And at a certain point, we have to say no to that sort of enticing drug hit that the negative path gives to us to hate someone else, to feel like I'm right. You know, those things, we have to see that they're actually um, fooling us into victimizing ourselves. Yeah, it's a sort of contradiction or maybe a unity where you're in terms of self, you're like, you'd be like, controlling others but also a slave to others right yeah you're a slave and you enslave that's the negative path right so um in society like you get these different values that people might be more drawn to than others due to their own upbringing and so forth do you think like for example some part someone might be more inclined to be rebelling against authority out of a sense of maybe that that's freedom but they might still be kind of rebelling against a father figure or something or someone in some way on an egoic level someone else might feel like to be safe they need to follow instead of to feel safe and control be, have control they need to rebel, they might think, okay, to be safe and feel a sense of control, I need to go with the herd. Um, I feel like I'm making more of a statement than a question, actually. <laughs> what do you think? Yeah, no, I, I agree. It's Again, it's, it's unique to everyone in the way that they've been conditioned and traumatized and whatnot. But that's why having an understanding of what the ego is, why it does what it does, what its objective is, um, can give all of us the same insights and the same healing opportunities 
um, to discover our true nature because every ego is at, at the end of the day, the same ego conditioned differently, maybe, but it functions the same. And so we understand it. We have to understand it the same way. So awareness is key fundamentally in yeah. let's talk about free will. Uh, that's an interesting subject. There's different ways of framing it, I suppose. Mm -hmm. You've mentioned that, um, that we don't have free will, but I, my impression, correct me if I'm wrong, is that you're saying that the ego doesn't have free will, but that yeah, yeah. it doesn't have separate free will where you're separate from the rest of reality as an individual agent against the world or whatever, right? Right. But yeah. that maybe um, if source has free will and source is a multiplicity that's united as one, then each soul, which is one with each other soul, can kind of co-create, right? Do you, are you saying basically that as the I am, we have free will in union with the rest of the I am or the rest of souls? So I would say that you only can be said to truly have free will when your sense of self is everything, the totality. When your sense of self is an isolated object within the totality, that cannot be said to have free will. Does so you give sense? away your free will in by when you adopt the illusion of separation. I'm the body, I'm the person, yeah. The body, the person doesn't have free will because they're entirely a product. The person is entirely a product of its environment at every moment. And if, if you tried to, if you separated the person from the environment, there would be no person. And so the, the environment is your body, every bit as much as this meat suit is your body. Everything is completely interconnected and playing off one another and nothing acts independently of that totality. And ego's sense of free will is I'm a separate individual self that I can act independently from the totality. And that only can bring suffering and misery because everything the totality does, which seems to be in opposition to what you want, brings anger, sadness, fear, anxiety. And so you fight and resist against reality, thinking that it's the problem when it's actually your conception of self that's out of alignment with it. And as soon as you get back into alignment with it and say, no, I am this totality, knowing itself in one form, then whatever happens in that totality is seen as my will, is experienced as my will. And only that can be said to truly be free will, because as you said, only the source has that free will. Right. You've talked about, um, I think you were talking about Jesus's parable of the lion or something about how the lion can be a beast, a ferocious beast, or it can be this majestic being. Were you talking about the subconscious and how, how the subconscious can either be egoic or something almost radiant, a radiant servant of some kind? Yeah. Yeah, that passage is from the Gospel of Thomas um, where Jesus says, blessed is the lion, and he goes on this thing about when um, it's, I have to read it to get it right. 
But the idea is that uh, the lion is a picture of our animal nature. And when the lion, the animal nature conquers us, um, we are cursed essentially, as Jesus says in the parable, we suffer, um, we experience loss and death and anger. And that's, um, I do, I sort of do like a, a connection to the chakra network that those bottom three chakras, the root sacral and solar plexus that represents our animal nature. And until we conquer the animal nature, healing it and balancing it, that energy can't flow up to meet our divine self, you know, at the, uh, the third eye center and the upper three chakras, upper four chakras really are the spiritual ones. And until that energy is unblocked from here, it can't rise up here to experience our divine nature. So the lion, when it's exalted to its highest expression, represents power and wisdom and majesty. And, uh, you know, all of the sort of divine expressions we see in the Bible where they, they equate God to a lion. God is like a roaring lion, you know, the most majestic of all the, the beasts of the earth, right? And so we embody those qualities of, of righteousness and nobility and um, stillness and peace of mind and wisdom, authenticity, like a lion does. Um, but if we aren't healed in our animal nature, when it conquers us, we express all of the worst aspects of it, right? Selfishness. Right pride etc right so the, is the ego wounded subconscious um no i wouldn't say it's the ego is wounded subconscious i would say that the ego is what tells you the subconscious is, is wounded the ego is what defines you as wounded it, it identifies as wounded it will make a story out of your wounds um, but the wound itself is just energy stuck in the network. So it's like symptoms. Which part is like symptoms? So is the ego like a symptom or a set of symptoms um, of um, a sort of madness that comes from um, sense of the illusion of separation? Well, Sort of in a sense, but really the ego is earlier than that. Whatever the ego does, whatever ego's effects are, are the symptoms of the ego. So I, I have been abused. I'm an abuse victim. That, that is what the ego does. It identifies as the abuse victim. Whereas let's say one who is totally egoless, if they were to be um, you know, beaten by someone, and then once the moment's over, it leaves no footprints in them. There's no separate, there's no sense of a separate self that can be abused, that it, that energy could be stuck in the network after that and create us, the ego can grab onto it and make a story out of it. It just moves right through the person. They don't identify with it. They let themselves feel whatever the body feels. And when it's over, the recognition is, well, glad that's over. And those stories made out of it. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, I'm reminded. Without an ego, I'll say. I'm reminded of um, Neville Goddard, actually, because essentially he seems to talk about programming the subconscious. Um, and then there's a parable, the lion, about the, which can take two forms. Mm -hmm. So, um, how's it going with this? <laughs> 
Neville Goddard? Yeah. Um, just the idea that one of the things he talked about that I remember was you can be like Abel or you can be like Cain. Um, mm. The subconscious still exists, but as you said, there'll be all this negative energy with stories and identities about it, it when you when there's ego. But in the absence of ego, um, how does that, how does the subconscious work yeah. without ego? Yeah, great question. So, the, so what I teach is that the ego is the part of the mind that identifies with everything. It says, I this, I that, and it claims, claims, claims all day long. And this is how we have this continuity every day, all day, that I really am this person living this story called Aaron's life or whatever. So if that ego sense has not been questioned and dissolved through self-inquiry and spiritual practice, then whatever challenging or painful circumstances happen to me, if whatever emotional reactions, negative emotional reactions I feel or experience, those will become impressed into my subconscious because ego will claim them and say, oh, that pain, the pain's happening to me and it will identify with it. There is a me in here who is suffering from the pain. And so without an ego, that recognition wouldn't be there. It would just be pain in the moment. It'd be the experience of pain, but no one who is experiencing it or being abused by it or whatever. That's all a story the mind makes up. So as I said, it, it, it's impossible for energy to leave footprints in the beingness, in the subconscious, unless the ego lays claim to it. So the feminine represents, the subconscious represents the feminine aspect of the mind. The conscious is the masculine aspect of the mind. And truthfully, both are meant to work in harmony. But when there's ego in place, the, the greater the level of ego's influence is, the more these two will seem to go to war with one another. Right. And that's duality. Oh, yes. But I'm really enjoying your answer so far because... Um... Yeah, I'm, I'm interested in sort of like the collective patterns in society of ego as well, not just how it works. Likewise. Of course, we don't want to project into others and focus too much on others because we've got to do the inner work. But yeah. Um... I believe you can get a lot of insights from looking at the collective ego consciousness, um, which is why I'm very interested and fascinated in looking at that and the way it plays out in the world. Um, because... If you can see it in another and you know that whatever I see is in me, then that can give you a nice reflection of some things that maybe I haven't recognized in myself either. Oh, because in week one of your Master Mind course, it's like everything I see, is everything I see is me or something like that? Uh, yeah. So that teaching is actually the opposite because it's referring to a different aspect of mind. Uh, it's, it's referring to the part of your mind that labels everything as I this, I that. So the mantra is actually whatever appears is not me, meaning whatever my mind tries to claim, I am this body, I'm this person, I, this story, this memory. You start to deny reality to those things by saying, no, I am nothing that can be named. I am not a form. I'm not an object. Um, and that helps you to retreat back to your true nature of pure awareness. But what we're talking about here is projection which means the way I react 
to something is signaling if that energy is still within my chakra network somewhere. Does that make sense? Kind of. So is there a distinction between, so something's happening in the world, which is one with me, obviously. And is it our interpretation or labeling of or reaction to that that signifies what's going on inside of us? And not the but the event itself, what's happening. Yes. Was it right? And what's happening is simply a medium for the signals to be seen. Yeah, what well, what we had said a minute ago that every ego is you know conditioned a little bit different, every personality is different, everyone's a unique expression in an in infinite variety of ways. So the way that anyone might express their own distortions will be very, very different. But the actual distortion itself, the belief that I'm not good enough, I'm unworthy of love, um, I'm afraid of this cold, cruel world I live in, you know, whatever that original cause, that distortion of energy is, might be expressed in a myriad of ways, but it's the same cause within me if what I see causes me to react negatively. Am I correct that even separation seems to reflect unity? Say again. Does this seem, it seems a bit like even separation and it's the different ways people in ego like interpret or identify things. Even that is unified as just basically the same thing. Right, absolutely. It, it, separation is how we know unity. It's, it's, the, it's our mirror to know unity. Of course, yeah. So it can't be hated or, or judged, right? It's everything's equally valid in its own way, positive or negative. Both are helping the creator to know itself, which is why Ra says in the law of one, the creator does not blink at the light or at the darkness. So there's different, um, actually Jonathan Haidt, I'm not sure if I'm aware of his work, but he talks about something called moral foundations theory, where there are these key values that play out in politics that people believe in. Now we're, we're, we're aware of the ego uh, attaching to these sort of things. Uh, I'll list them here just in case. There's authority, care, loyalty, which is loyalty to an in-group. Mm -hmm. That's fairness, sanctity, and there's an extra one, which is liberty, which is also considered to be reactants. It's like, don't tell me what to do, sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Sanctity seems to be linked to disgust. Apparently, Adolf Hitler was had a lot of disgust. Uh and it's this idea of cleanliness, right? Mm -hmm. So some of these things might be survival mechanisms, but they're applied towards other people yeah. for social status, right? So what do you think? Would you like to elaborate on, I guess, values and how they relate to politics and culture and society? Yeah. Well, I think it all originates from body consciousness because all of the qualities that you just read off are very much qualities inherent in our true nature, that it is free. Um, uh, what would be the word for um, sanctity? It is, it is uh, sovereign, yeah. right. you know, it has importance in and of itself. Um, and if we don't know ourself as the light of the soul, a formless awareness, consciousness in the body, and we think we're the body, then we'll project all those qualities onto the body. 
So Adolf Hitler, for example, if he believes that my, you know, my body is sanctity or my body is sovereign because I'm a German, I'm this race, I'm this nationality, you know, white, white skin, blue hair, uh, blue eyes, blonde hair. That's what is sovereign. Then all the other bodies that aren't like that aren't sovereign. So there I can dehumanize them and da, 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 because I've projected sovereignty onto this type of body. Right. And that goes awry in all the other categories you read as well. So until we know who we are beyond the body, until we know the light of God within us, these conflicts will just go on ad infinitum because our bodies will just keep arguing over their different identities and nobody ever wins in those arguments. Right. Really. It's just more division, except for the fact that there's catalyst occurring. There's definitely catalyst. Yes. So somebody's going to wake up eventually. <laughs> and it's already happening. I mean, otherwise, yeah. we won't be having this conversation. Right. A huge segment of the population right now is sort of regressing into a more unconscious state, becoming more and more identified and separate from the world. And another segment is doing the opposite, is awakening, is becoming more aware and more conscious of who they are and who we are in the grand scheme. And so I think it's up to those of us who are using this sort of these troubling times as an opportunity to wake up to our to the fact that we've got to be in this together. We've got to become one. We've got to become unified. We have to begin really shining that light and not giving into the energy of the group of unconscious who are angry, hateful, judging, violent, etc. If we meet them with that energy, all we're going to do is strengthen them. So it is yeah. a very powerful and, and challenging catalyst for us right now. Eckhart Tolle talks about, he said that the ego can intensify in its activity. Um, and I think you've said something similar and others have said it, that the ego intensifies in its activity as it's sort of dying, so to speak. Oh, yes. Big Does time. that explain what's been happening and how, why ego seems to be intensifying and all this conflict and everything? Yeah, if, if you think about what happens when you back a scared animal into a corner or a person, a scared person into a corner, they're probably going to get very violent with you. They're going to, you know, as a last ditch effort to survive or save themselves, they're going to thrash around and do whatever crazy, irrational, scary behavior they can to get you to leave them alone to protect themselves. And uh, that's very much a lot of what's happening in the world, people's reaction to what's happening in the world to cause even more hatred and division. And so again, that's why, you know, if you wanted to, I always use this example, if you wanted to prove to a frightened animal, let's say if you're trapped in a room with a frightened animal, that's kind of giving you that energy, how would you go about proving to that animal that you're not a threat to it and that you're actually on its side and friendly with it? Well, you definitely wouldn't get in its face and try to be like, I'm your friend, right? Because <laughs> it's going to reinforce its belief that you're a threat. You would probably just sort of ignore it, let it do what it's doing, give it the space to have that reaction, but not give in to that reaction and simply just be there in a peaceful, loving presence. And eventually that animal will start to figure out, okay, I mean, if they wanted to attack me, they probably would have by now. Maybe they're not so bad and slowly they'll open up, their heart will open up to the fact that you're not their enemy and you're not separate. And so I, I see that as what we have to do in the world right now is, you know, if uh, you're being labeled, there's lots of labels being thrown right now. You don't want to take this forced injection. Well, then you're this, you're that, you're this, you're that. 
And if we can just take those blows without responding with hatred or anger, but with love, we will prove to them that we aren't what they're labeling us as. We're not their enemies. We're not the bad guys. And that takes a lot of inner willpower and strength. But again, that's the opportunity. That's the invitation the universe is extending to all of us to really level up our spiritual game. Yeah, though I'm wondering, do you think sometimes you need to go into darkness to come to light? Like in the hero's journey, there's this, yeah, that, that's the pattern. So even though I see a lot of people going into conflict and so forth, I, I actually trust that a lot of them will actually, I, I, you know, I'm going to wake up. It's just because it's a preliminary stage before that, like the dark night of the soul sort of thing. And from my experience, that's kind of a bit like what it was for me. Like it got worse before it got better. And I don't even know what stage I'm at yet. It doesn't really matter. I'll just sort of see how it goes. Very good. Yeah. Yeah. And in many ways, the, the level of darkness that you're able to transcend becomes your light. You gain all of that polarity when you experience it. So it's like the further you go into that darkness and come out, you know, the resurrection what that sort of stands for. The greater that light you will shine as a result, the more you are forged in that fire. So yes, we have to experience darkness. That's, that is the human journey. That is why our souls come here to be forged in the fires of contrast and to come out of it with more light to shine, more love to give. There's no other way that we ascend. Right. When I was reading the raw material recently, <clears throat> or the first book, there seemed to be an assessment of how the harvest is going to be that seemed a little bit underwhelming, perhaps. Repetitious. But is that something that's subject to change in the moment as it transpires? Um, yeah, I mean, I think everything is in a sense. I, I believe in that passage, Ra was kind of scanning the probability vortex for the future saying, you know, we're looking into your future and there's probably many parallel realities that they can look at. And they're kind of calculating the percentages of which, how many of these are a trepidatious harvest. And they say, well, look to us, it looks like there's a great chance, almost a guaranteed chance that your future harvest into fourth density will be a very challenging one. There'll be a lot of obstacles to overcome and it won't, it won't come easily, but it will come. And that's ultimately the good news and what needs to be, you know, focused on to get through it. There seem to be these different ideas of how it's going to transpire. Because at one point I thought, okay, so some people are going to harvest the surface others, some people serve the cell, and some people will just redo the cycle. And I'm sure that's true to some extent, but I've also had some people claiming in the Jewish community that all of humanity is rising in this um, or most in this ascension. And um, yeah, there are diverse different ideas of how it's going. Then there's the Christ consciousness. So yeah, do, maybe we don't know exactly how it will turn out. For sure we don't. I mean, that's, that's the game of the universe. It's all, uh, 
it's all an experiment the creator is running and it, it sets up the variables you know all the players in the in the race and then it says go and it just watches what happens and that's how the creator learns of itself is what the law of one teaches yeah i've just realized the um the raw material is it's fantastic well that's a just you know what i mean it's great right. but like it's just one message from one being about what's happening, right? Even if there's extensity. So and I don't think, we don't need to treat it as gospel. And in fact, that would probably be more like an egoic thing anyway. It's just one perspective, right? Yeah, well, Ra is very careful not to ever give any kind of assurances of the future. You know, they, they simply will scan when they're asked and it's not an infringement. They'll scan the probabilities and say, here's the probabilities we're seeing. Uh, you know, they would never say, here's what your future will be. Here's a prophecy of what's going to happen, because that would very much not be that would be an infringement on free will from their perspective. And the spiritual truth that they teach, um, you know, as they would say, and any good spiritual teacher would say is don't just believe what I'm saying. Don't just take what I'm saying as gospel, but test it out for yourself feel what your intuition, how your intuition responds to it. Trust your inner guidance. I mean, if everything in you hears these messages and says, no, this is wrong, trust that over what I'm saying. Any, any teacher worth their salt would have that approach. Right. Uh, I suppose we need to use a discernment and see how it resonates or feels. Um, how, how do you discern personally a, um, what kind of the mess? What kind of message you're receiving? Suppose someone's a channeler. Um, they might be predicting. I'm kind of answering the question. <laughs> yeah, how do you discern it? What are the signs of a positively orientated message or a negatively orientated message to you? You know, we just have to trust our intuition. Um, conceptual truth is helpful for sure to a degree. But again, the negative path can manipulate truth very easily. You know, take this forced thing, whether you like it or not, because that's the virtuous thing to do. It's like, well, telling someone what to do is never virtuous, but they'll, they'll paint that picture that way to coerce you into believing that it's the right thing to do. And if you're not sensitive to what your heart is saying, you might miss that, um, that opportunity. So really intuition is the only way to know, which for me also is, expansion or contraction when we say something feels good we say it makes me feel more open more connected more one more expanded and when it feels negative it makes me feel more separate more contracted and you just have to learn to to blindingly trust those feelings i think because even in the moment someone could be saying all the right things and it's like those truths are true those those statements are true but if the energy being delivered from has secret manipulating motives behind it. You know, you can't pick that up with the intellect. You'll just hear the statements that are being said on the surface layer and trust that. And then this person can control you. So your heart will never lead you astray in that regard. Your heart will pick up all those energies because energy doesn't lie. It's just energy. It just reads itself exactly as it is. And only the heart chakra truthfully translates energy like that and then filters it up through the network. So it has to be the center of your trust. Yeah, and I guess we don't need to worry about 
there being negative messages out there or whatever, because we can trust that everything is perfect and all that. And we use our own discernment. We feel the expansion or not. And I guess anyone listening, like, if you're not sure, well, is it expansion or contraction? Mm-hmm. Exactly. And you'll know. Yeah. If you, if you have a need to be right, if, if ego is involved, it will heavily distort your perception and your awareness. Because the ego just will just, you'll only be seeing what reinforces your rightness or what challenges your rightness. And you can't actually engage with the truth of the present moment in whatever, whatever that might be. So humility is key. If you want to really know truth, if you don't want to be led astray into the wrong ways of thinking, you have to get as, as humble and selfless as possible because ego will just infinitely distort whatever messages are coming through and you won't be able to to listen to what your heart is saying at that point. Right. Yeah. Um, some theories of um, psychology have talked about things like being a critic, being a child, and things like that. How does that relate? How would you relate that to your understanding of the mind? Yeah, inner critic is a great way of describing the ego because the, the critic is the voice that wants you to live up to those identities it's collected. You know, if, if an identity, um, I am smart, you know, whenever that was formed, oh, I'm smart. People see me as a smart person. Well, then now I have to live up to that all the time. So anything I do or say or anything that happens, which seems to contradict that identity, ego will become critical towards me for that. Say you're not living up to this identity. You've got to do that. Live up to it, enforce it, enhance it. And so we become even more inauthentic with time as we carry those identities. And the inner child to me represents our sort of original nature, our soul, um, our original innocence that doesn't know good, good, good or evil. It doesn't use those concepts. It's prior to good and evil or, you know, right and wrong, positive, negative. And I think that's reflected in, uh, a really great passage in A Course in Miracles that says, innocence is wisdom for it is unaware of evil and evil does not exist. So that the mind, the ego will tell you evil exists. Why? What's evil? Whatever threatens me, whatever challenges my sense of self, that's bad and wrong and evil and I should hate it and I should judge it. And that is, um, that is a distortion of our original innocence, which doesn't make those claims, which doesn't look at anything in the universe as invalid, sort of like a little child or a baby. It's just experiencing and it's taking in everything and it doesn't have judgments yet. That to me is the inner child, which is a place within us we never lose. It just gets covered up with traumas and things and conditioning. And so really spiritual growth or healing is about removing those layers and getting back to that original innocence. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I forgot another question. <laughs> uh, yeah. So we're like an onion and the outer layers are more the ego where the ego is. Yeah, very much so. <sighs> well. 
It's interesting. <laughs> I guess I've got to um, let the I am come with something to say since I, I, there's no point being attached to it. Oh, there's a thing. I just must remember it. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a big one. Yeah. People do that in conversations. Um, you know, they're, they're not actually listening to the person because they're just trying to remember what they want to say. As soon as you're done talking, I'm going to say it. And those are also little subtle ways that we don't normally pick up that the separate self reinforces itself, right? What I say is extraordinarily important. You need to hear it because it's going to be important. And when you know it's important, that will reinforce me, that will enhance me in some way. So it's, it's a very good spiritual virtue uh, to truly listen to people. Yeah, I've been, yeah, I guess I've been kind of experiencing the ego in this interview. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah there's the next question. What was the next question? I prepared it, you know? Yeah. Well, that's, that's what I appreciate about um, really good interviewers is like, they'll have their, their preset questions of like, here's some topics I want to get into, but I'm open to like the flow of however that happens. If we get into a vein or a, a dialogue that's really, it's juicy, it's, there's a lot to unpack here. They'll just start letting questions come up spontaneously and like they're listening, they're present, you know. And um, this conversation I've appreciated for that reason because some, a lot of interviews I've done, you know, people will like, they'll be like, tell me about the ego. And I'll tell them whatever the question was. Okay, great. Tell me about the law of one. And it's just like a disconnected. It's like, we're not really having a conversation, right? <laughs> yeah, I guess I did kind of have certain questions that were connected with a certain trajectory that I had in mind, but. Yeah. Well, when you're in a real dialogue with someone, they, they can flow that way. Like it doesn't need to be disconnected even, even just because the questions seem to be somewhat different subjects. It's like you, if we're really in a flow with one another, we'll find ways they'll work their way into the conversation You say, Oh, that sparks this question I had. And, you know, we're flowing together. And, um, I, I appreciate one who's willing to have patience and let the questions come to them, you know, sort of like you're reflecting now, rather than just trying to stick to a script or something. And right. I think the audience does too, big time. So if you, if someone wants to connect, was interested in connecting, uh, say psychically in some way, or trying out things like tarot and stuff like that, what would you advise them? How to begin that? Yeah, or how do you, um, like not for the ego not to get in the way and stuff like that. Mm. Well, you know, whatever you do, the ego is going to try to get in the way. It's just the way it is. It has to claim everything. It has to use everything as a means to an end to enhance itself. So really in whatever you do, you're not going to, you're not going to escape it in any endeavor. So it's like, just make use of whatever you're doing to raise your awareness of that voice, the voice that wants to contaminate everything with personal interest and identity and just Strive, I think, to really see how much that dilutes and contaminates everything you do. You know, the beauty of everything, the simplicity of everything is, is just ruined in so many ways when the separate self gets so involved with it. And uh, that's, you know, one of the hallmark spiritual teachings in Buddhism is emptiness for that reason. 
to learn how to become empty within is how to truly experience life in the world in all of its vibrancy and its um, dynamic nature. You have to sort of get out of the way in order to do that. Yeah, perhaps with lockdown and everything, one of the advantages it's enabled for people is their typical nine to five was disrupted. They've got more time to go in and reflect and maybe be in nature working in the garden or something. Yeah. Well, that's something that Ra says in the Law of One. At a certain passage, um, they, they mentioned something about a kind of unconscious slavery that humanity is currently in. And I think Don asks, like, do you care to elaborate? What do you mean by that? And they say, well, your current world system thrives off of this, you know, eight hour work day where almost all of the hours of the day are people are being forced into doing work that um, doesn't actually contribute to their spiritual growth at all and is really unnecessary for the most part. I think there's a study that came out recently that said the average person only actually works like does work for three hours a day at their job and they're just sort of pissing away the time and in whatever way the other five hours because people were just not wired to work like that and i think our souls are craving growth and evolution and experience and ross says if if your planet could shorten the workday to what's reasonable we would have so much more time for being in nature and spiritual practicing and spiritual growth which is really what we need perhaps work could be if opposites are unified, because they say things like work play. I don't know if they actually use that phrase, but they, they use they say opposites together, don't they? Right. So if everyone's bullet if we're voluntarily interacting and just doing what they were called to do, it would be yeah. kind of work and kind yes. of play. And if everyone did that, now some people say, Oh, it's unrealistic. How could a society function if you do like that? But if I think about it, it, it transcends any political economic system that we're used to because it's source i guess happening and we can't fix um any of these egoic systems whether it's monarchy democracy or whatever it is Mm -hmm. ego spoils it or whereas it doesn't matter what it is if we're freely interacting, like it will just happen without there having to be, this is your job. This is what you do. Right. <clears throat> yeah. It's sort of like the idea that, you know, communism can only exist in an absolutely perfect world with perfect people. So it's like, ideally, if, if our world leaders were absolutely selfless and only cared about the good of all, then for sure communism could work. Right. But it's like, are we anywhere near that yet? No. It's materialist, though, isn't it? What's that? So I'm interrupted, but like, um, so um, the uh, Marxism, for example, one thing interesting about it is the dialectical idea of unison of there's a thesis and antithesis, and it kind of combines and society sort of adapts over time with new forms. But because it's materialist and it seems to be in sep- a theory about based on separation, um, the idea of communism presented is ultimately something that could only be imposed. But 
whatever we label society, what society would be after New Earth, like, it's like it has all the advantages of any political system without the costs. Right. Well, that's a great example of the negative path, right? Marxism. Uh, the basic premise of Marxism, the basic worldview that Marxism puts forward, right, is that all of the world is divided into two categories of the oppressed and the oppressors. That's all that exists. There is nothing else. And so you have to accept their worldview in order to then give them your power. It's a way that the, the government, the, those in power want to convince or coerce really the people to freely give them their rights away and their power. And they have to do that by selling them a very negative worldview. There's really no goodness in the world. It's really just oppressed, oppressed and oppressor. And if you want to escape this horrible world, we're the saviors. We're here to help you. We're going to create a utopia for you where nobody's oppressed and nobody's an oppressor. We're going to eliminate the oppressors. And in doing so, we'll eliminate the oppressed. And so they say, here's how we're going to do it. And then, you know, everyone's equal, get in line, same same lunch line, same grocery store. You know, you could, you only have access to these things because it's what keeps us equal. And in actuality, they become the oppressors and you become, everyone becomes the oppressed. And so again, you have to buy what they're selling. You have to disempower yourself first before you'll buy that worldview. And so that's a big part of what we see in our world today, obviously, is that we're a certain faction is trying to sell us that the world is basically pure evil and only a big powerful government could save us from it. And uh, if we're willing to give our power to that, which is outside of us, that'll sound like a very tantalizing option. And then at some point, I think I heard a, a great quote about Marxism that says, um, if you vote in for Marxism, your grandchildren will have to shoot their way out of it. Like right. that's kind of what always happens in history, right? People voted in because they buy what they're being told from their leaders and then in a few generations, they're in this sort of civil war revolution trying to get out of it again. So it's like, let's learn from that, right? To clarify, though, you're not taking a political side here. In fact, would you agree that all ideologies are, or political philosophies are pretty much function on the same sort of egoic basis? If we're talking political parties, yes in the sense that both sides, left and the right, they both want the same thing, which is the power. And when they get it, they both will do the same thing with it. What about, for example, not the party, but the, let's say, for example, the libertarian movement. I'm raising this because on the face value, it's all about liberty and independent expansion. Mm -hmm. But is, where does the ego lie in some, a movement like that? Yeah. Well, the ego really lies just in the identification with the party, because an idea is just an idea at the end of the day, if you don't lay claim to it, if you're not personally invested in it as this is the right idea, so everyone should believe it because I believe it, this needs to be the world that I want to live in, so I need to make it happen. That's what, how the ego will distort things. So the Libertarian Party, for example, is not not in and of itself a problem unless people identify as I'm a Libertarian because that will eventually turn into that everyone needs to be libertarian because we're the one right party and they both have it wrong and we're the right party. So we should start a revolution or whatever. And that will just, again, perpetuate that cycle of division until we can acknowledge of like, hey, whatever you believe, whatever your leanings are, conservative, liberal, whatever, 
all are welcome, all are one, because the supremacy of the individual person is number one, right? Acknowledging the individual's rights, um, individual free will and sovereignty has to be the one truth upon which we all agree. Otherwise, we'll just always be at war with one another because we're going to make our ideologies the foundation and our ideology is the most important thing. And even if you're just trying to change people's minds, then like it's you're invested in the outcome. Right. And you're it just becomes a game of clan conversion. I'm trying to get you from that clan to my clan, but like the problem isn't solved, right? Clans are the problem. Yeah. So I guess fundamentally, there's all these different ideologies and systems about what, how we could fix things, right? Or, or whatever. But fundamentally, the key choice is the spiritual one. Right. We have to love one another, regardless of our opinions or beliefs. I mean, if you hate somebody just because of what they believe, you have to realize you are what you hate. You know, you, you are, you become what you hate. In fact, um, if you, if you hate, let's say, you know, the Nazis, the KKK, because they're, they were racist and you hate them because of that. Well, then that hate will drive you to become angry and then eventually violence. And then eventually you're justifying subjugating certain people. Uh, you're justifying being violent as a means for solving the problem. Uh, you're justifying hating people because of their skin color or what they believe. And it's like, look, now you have no right at all to judge a KKK or a Nazi. You have become exactly like them. You're just wearing a different costume. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Abiga does that. Um, it sure does. So I'm reminded of your idea of the, the lion, or well, the Christ idea of the lion. You know, the... Um, there's a ferocious beast and then there's this exalted lion. In a way, it's like all of these different, on a collective level, ego with these different ideologies and movements and culture, tribes. It's all like bestial in a way. Yeah, very much so. A lot of that animal nature coming out, that anger, that gnashing of teeth, that violence, towards the other um, that is the distorted animal nature being manifest absolutely i would say martin luther king jr really demonstrated the exalted animal nature the, the strength the courage the willpower to stand in the face of oppression and not back down i mean that takes so much inner strength that only comes through one who's really balanced and healed themselves because if you're not balanced from within that anger of energy, that ang energy of anger from the opposition will pull you away from your center. You'll give into it. You'll, you'll mirror it back. Right. And the amazing thing about Martin Luther King Jr. And what the civil rights era, because of his message was able to accomplish is because he taught them this idea, right. Of we will only win this battle if we can love our oppressors and in doing so show them that we're nothing like they think we are. And eventually we will depolarize their negative energy. And that's exactly what they did. That's so seen. Yeah. So love is the answer. Uh, of course. Yeah. So I just think that the primary thing to be aware of when we're engaging in these kinds of 
um, battles of ideology, let's say, is that we're dealing really just with energy itself. And it is this energy which is moving us and acting us. And that energy ultimately wants only one thing. If it's the negative energy, it wants more separation. And if it's a positive energy, it wants more unity. And so to keep that in the forefront of our awareness is what I think it means to respond from love because you understand that it doesn't matter. Convincing you of my opinion doesn't matter. Um, converting you to my clan doesn't ultimately matter. What matters is depolarizing your energy from separation to unity, from negative to positive. So the primary objective in any interaction, at least it's really become this way for me because it's become so hostile and lethal and separated, is I need, I need this person to, to know and feel that I love them and I care about them and I honor them and I hear them. And so that makes the conversation look very different, but I've found that that is almost like an amazing backdoor entry into um, truly a productive conversation is if, if this person knows that I love them, then they'll be way more open and receptive to hearing me out. And maybe we still disagree. That's fine. But we've come more together at the end of the conversation rather than farther apart because I based everything out of love. All my responses, the objective is to communicate love not an opinion or an ideology. Because when you do that, you just lose. You just create more separation. Yeah. I mean, that broader holistic perspective and understanding, it comes from accepting others, accepting yourself, and it just opens up the way to build a rapport and bridge the divides. Because we can come up with all these different plans or ideas about how it can bring unity, right? Yeah. But without love, there's no unity. Exactly. So it starts within. Yeah. Very simple, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. It's interesting. When I started this podcast, I had this idea about, okay, let's focus on like how we can help people get from ideology or separation and all this sort of thing, to unity. But what I'm discovering as I do it is what it's really, the real ideology to unity is about going from ego to unity within. Ideology is all about ego anyway, so it's pretty much oh, yeah. about that. No, this is very much, you're very much right. The, the disharmony within will be expressed without, so when we see people can, um, conflicting, fighting with one another, creating division with one another, that's because there's division within themselves, right? When you're truly harmonized within, all you want is to create and seek harmony without. It's just a, a perfect reflection of the way you are in the world. So people are showing us where they are and that's why they need love. Yeah. Do you think surrender to, not just individually, but this surrender to the idea that everything's working out as it needs to for the awakening and the ascension and unity. Does, does that help us let go of any particular idea of how it needs to go? Yeah, I think this is a very important point because we can get confused on what it means to surrender sometimes in that 
surrender does not necessarily mean, and sometimes it may mean, but it doesn't necessarily mean you sit by and do nothing and just say, well, you know, let it all happen the way it's going to happen because you're actually leaving a part of the equation out, which is yourself. I mean, the universe has placed you in this equation for a reason. So if you feel a deep compulsion in yourself to speak truth to a situation or to help bring healing or, or, or whatever, that's also what the universe is doing. And to surrender to that is to let that energy move you from a place of love. You, it's not just about sitting on the sidelines and saying, well, I'm not going to get involved because I surrender. That actually might be resistance at a certain point. If there is a compulsion within you to get involved and bring love to a situation, bring truth to a situation, and you don't do that, that would actually be not surrendering to what source is asking you to do, right? So again, you have to follow that inner guidance and know that you are intimately a part of this equation. There's no such thing as standing on the sidelines. Yeah, and I guess in each moment, well, or one moment, that's how we, that's how we help bring unity. Um, yeah. We don't need any particular strategy per se, just... It's said that each person ascending kind of helps like over a thousand people. Right. So it's like, I feel like it's, we're going to be seeing it becoming more exponential. Yeah, I think so too. Do you think a lot of people have awakened or started those steps towards awakening on the download? Uh, the last year or two. Oh, yes. This is a, a mass global awakening we're seeing. Uh, the, the pandemic is such a catalyst for awakening because it forces people to ask questions they weren't asking before. It forces them to see things they weren't seeing before. And whenever somebody opens their awareness like that, um, spiritual seeking always begins whether they realize it or not. And I think eventually they'll realize what I'm really seeking is the truth within me not the truth in the world, right? That's actually just pointing me to what I'm lacking inside. Right. So um, I think of wrapping up about now. It's been a great interview. I've really enjoyed it. So likewise, how do you summarize what we've been talking about briefly? Yeah, great question. If, if we could summarize what we've been saying here, I think, for me, it's just about trying to get everyone on the same page in how we respond to this catalyst. Those of us who are, you know, light workers, so to speak, who are on this path, we want a world of unity and love. How do we create that? Well, we have to get on the same page initially in how we respond to this attempt to make the world of separation and division. I mean, that's what's happening is there's powers and, and people in positions of power who want to create a world of control and domination and separation. And if we don't want that world, we have to create a world of unity starts from within and gets reflected out. And so a lot of my content right now is just geared towards this message of like, look, I understand times are difficult. I understand these challenges are very intense, um, but we can't give into that energy and let it depolarize us and make us like it. We can't respond with anger. We can't respond with judgment. We have to look within ourselves and find that light of truth and be that light in the world, which is just love. So every decision I make and how I respond to the injustices of the world, let me first check if it's gone through the filter of love. And then if it has, I can let it express freely because I know it's coming from truth. But if we're allowing that energy to change us into anger and division and more separation, we have to realize that that's 
the ultimate objective of, you know, the negative path is that they're actually winning when we do that. So we have to be true to our polarity and stand on the side of love and of light. Yeah, I, um, I really like the way you put it. And uh, I feel pretty confident that anyone who listened to this all the way through, even part of it, you know, would have really got a lot out of it. So, yeah, it was, uh, it was some great co-creation there. So thank you for coming Absolutely. on. I appreciate you having me on, my friend. Been a pleasure. All right, then. I'm probably going to go and have dinner. Um, you have a great day. And same for you, listener. Have a fantastic, have a fantastic day. All right. Without further ado, bye for now.